Welcome to Simple Indeed, a podcast about the power of engaging our story to love fully. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and I'm happy you're here. Let's get started. Welcome back to Simple and Deep. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and I thought it was just about time that we start looking at the topic of attachment. If you've seen my Instagram, you're seeing that I am truly trying to hone in on the calling that I believe is for the rest of my life, which is helping women understand and heal from insecure attachments to engage their stories and live intentional lives of purpose and influence. I came to the topic of attachment in a very messy, shattered, broken way. After 12 years of a behavioral addiction, I finally decided that I'd had enough. I shattered. And without going into all of my story at this moment, I'm sure I will later, but I remember looking at my therapist and asking her, why am I sabotaging my life? And she clearly, without pause, said, because you have insecure attachment. And I had no idea how to respond to that. I mean, I was an educator. I've gone through lots of theory classes and psychology classes and that sort of thing. But what would attachment have to do with behavioral addictions or impulsivity or um, this cavernous feeling of not being enough or being too much? But oh my goodness, friends, if I can tell you anything about this process, it is worth the trip. But it is hard. It's hard work. Being present for yourself is hard work, especially if you do have insecure attachment. So let's go through and see what it is that children need to attach. What is attachment, obviously, and then what we need to attach. And then also what happens when we have insecure attachments. We have some narratives or internal working models that start to happen in our lives. And honestly, they don't go away with time. Time does not heal attachment. Secure attachment repair is what works. The neuroplasticity, I know it's a huge word, neuroplasticity means that our brain is plastic. That means that in some ways, our brain can be molded and changed and rewired. And that is the good news, my friend. With God's help, with your strength and determination, as well as you deciding that from this moment on, These cycles of abuse and trauma and broken connection are going to stop with me. From this moment on, from the moment you hear this message until the rest of your life, you can make this choice. So let's look at attachment. First and foremost, attachment is the emotional bond between infant and caregiver. It's where the infant's primary needs are met. So let's look at it this way. You have a baby in a room in a crib and it's crying. The mother hears the cry and responds quickly to the baby, looking for what might possibly be the problem. So they attune to their baby. They pay attention. They focus on the baby. They're looking. They're seeing what is the baby doing with their body? How are they crying? They get to know their baby's cries, that this sounds like I'm crying because I'm hungry. This cry sounds like I'm crying because I have a wet diaper. So through endless thousands of exchanges between infant and caregiver, a child learns that this person that loves me is trustworthy. This person, this mother of mine, this heartbeat, who I am now in tandem with, 
I lay upon the chest of this person and they keep me safe and they keep me calm and they make sure that everything is okay. So one relationship in your life with your primary caregiver changed the structure of your brain. Our brains, according to Diane Poole Heller, are born fat. Fat in the fact that they are ready for connection to understand the world around us. But because our brains are also worried, that means that they are wired for connection and for experience. But our brains are also made for survival. Survival is the key most important thing, right? So our brains will also be looking for threats for survival. So what happens with our primary caregivers from the very beginning is going to change the structure of our brain. If we have interactions where we feel safe and tended to, listened to, comforted and soothed, and that person becomes what we could call a secure base. John Bowlby coined this term back in the 60s that we can return back to that person for soothing care. We can go out and explore the world. Think of being um, in a room where a child is playing and they're playing with blocks and they trip over a block and fall over and start to cry. Most likely the secure base will come to the child, right? And they will pick the child up and soothe the child and ask them where it hurts. And if the child has words, they'll show. Maybe if they don't have words, they'll point. And the mom maybe will kiss the kiss the owie. They'll, she'll make it better. She'll give them lots of snuggles and hugs. And then she'll put the child back on the floor. And if the child has that secure attachment, they can go off and continue to play. Because they've been soothed. They've come to a secure place. They got what they needed. And then they're able to move on. But... When that cycle is not certain, when that cycle does not happen on a continual basis or doesn't happen at all, a child will actually create less secure attachment in their brain and it will shave off those places and prune where it doesn't need to prune and it will actually grow in those places that are for our stress response system. And our nervous system is taking in information all the time. And so trauma actually occurs when insecure attachments are created. In my upcoming work, I'm trying to create the connection in a simple and deep way between all the different ways that we see trauma, because I think that we're very limited in a lot of ways. And I, I'm just celebrating uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera just wrote a beautiful book called How to Do the Work. And she also is tuning into the idea that trauma is not just what we think trauma would be. Obviously, if someone goes through a mass shooting or 9-11, they were um, in a war zone, domestic violence, we say, okay, that's that's what we would consider big trauma. But I'm also super curious about little traumas, what, well, what people would consider little traumas, because I was healing when I went back and through my own story, I was healing moments where I wasn't acknowledged or moments where I was ignored moments where I needed emotional first aid or tender, loving care. And it just didn't happen. We are the walking wounded. My friends, we are all walking around with broken hearts and we're pretending that we aren't broken. We hide between behind our insufficiencies uh, through um, masks. We, we just, we don't understand that actually to bring what hurts us into the light 
is what Fred Rogers called manageable, right? Whatever is mentionable is manageable. And I think that that is such a clear way of seeing it, that if we mention this hurt me, we're also giving it voice and we're naming it. Uh, And my journey is also leading me to the work of Dan Allender. And he said that all stories in our lives need to be named. They need to be pondered. They need to be articulated. And then they need to be blessed. It is not okay if people did not meet your needs, period. It is not okay if you had to do an adult role as a child. Not okay, period. It is not okay if someone stole your innocence, your safety, your well-being. Not okay, period. And we have reasons that we try to defend that. Because people that are our caregivers, people that are supposed to love us should not hurt us. Would you agree? That is the hardest wound to heal. But it's a worthy wound to look at and to be kind. And I, I've really learned that as we turn towards the child we were and really listen to what needs to be said and that we, we sit with people who can contain our story and hold our story. They're not going to judge it. They're not going to try to fix it. They're just going to listen and witness what we need to say and then tell us what they hear. Because also, according to Allender, we have contours and patterns and themes within our lives that are actually showing us where God is at work where he's sneaking into the story and where he is showing us how he wants us to display his glory to a broken world. Nothing unites people more than brokenness. To me, broken people are the most holy people. So they say that our parents only have to get this right 20 to 30% of the time for us to be securely attached. And they also say the research says that it could be like between 50 and 60% of us that have secure attachment. And I, I just don't believe it. I mean, I guess I could see if they're getting medical studies and doing that, that's fine. But, but I am dealing with a lot of insecure people, including myself. So I think that, um, I don't know, I'm going to have to be a little more convinced with that, but we'll go with the research that about 50 to 60% of people, um, in a room would be securely attached. You can earn security, and that's what's so revolutionary and wonderful and thrilling. And that plasticity of the brain can help us gain freedom. That changing of the brain can uh, unlock us from patterns of uh, negative thought patterns. It can um, unlock us from narratives that we've been telling our whole lives. And I'm right here to tell you that this is still happening. You never actually fully recover, but it's one of those things where you're able to see what is your trauma brain and what is your wise brain. What is the little girl inside me screaming at me to do? And what do I have to turn to myself with compassion and say, Wistie, I've got this. Substitute your name. I've got this. Try it out loud. Just say it to yourself and insert your name. And if you need to, put your hand, if you're not driving, on your chest and say it to yourself again. I've got this. My counselor used to tell me, am I a wise adult? Or she'd ask me that. And I'd say, uh, yeah. And she's like, okay, 
I've got this. And now I say that to my kindergartners. Am I a wise adult? Yeah. Okay, I've got this. So let's look closely at what happens with secure attachment. So what do children need to securely attach? There's lots of different lists, but these are some of the things that they need. They need responsiveness. They need someone to engage them, to not just be in the same room with them, but really listen and watch them and observe them and be curious about them. They need attunement, someone to listen with all of their their ability to try to understand their story and what's going on inside it. This is why I believe that Fred Rogers was one of the most perfect models of secure attachment for us. That is why we continue to return to him. They need adults that are able to help them regulate the arousal in their nervous system. So a child is what we would call flooded or overwhelmed. What that adult does when they come into that situation is absolutely important. And I am the first one to say I failed this many times when my children were little because I didn't understand how to, on the next part, be strong enough to handle their negative emotions. Their negative emotions rarely had to do with me. They came from places of fear. They came from places of hunger. They came from places of separation or loss. And so we have to have compassion as we go back and we look into that story. But also we need to understand that we might not have all the answers that we need, but we can fill in the blanks with what could have helped in the situation, especially if it's a part of our story. What would have been a better thing that could have happened for me? And Diane, Diane Poole-Heller says that we can go back and imagine our parents having the strength to be able to do the things that they needed to do in a situation for us. And that actually helps activate our secure attachment system because we were all born with it. What we need to do is create connection back to it because what insecure attachment really is, is broken connection. And the last component is our willingness to repair with children. Repair means a rupture is something that happens that uh, disrupts our connection with a child. Most of the time, uh, I would think of it being like, we need to ask a child for forgiveness. We've snapped. We've lost control. We weren't attentive. We didn't understand. We jumped to conclusions, whatever that might be. We have a really hard time asking children to forgive us. For some reason, we think because we're adults that their pain is not as intense as ours. But if Fred Rogers taught us anything, it's that the emotions of children are big. He came into contact with this when he was in a child development center and a child asked him, what do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? And Fred was flabbergasted by that. And it became the first lyric to his song, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Because he said, wow, if a child is that mad that they want to bite, that's very primal. That's animalistic. So obviously a child, if they have that much rage, that feeling is real. And we often think, oh, well, they'll get over it. But what happens is if we are traumatically influenced by a situation that stays in our body and it needs to get out of our nervous system. So when a child is crying, it's actually helping that regulate 
that nervous system regulate. If they go and they're really physical and they go run or they, they do jump roping or they do something to get the mad out, it helps our nervous system not hold on to it. And what happens with secrets and toxicity is it makes us sick. It starts to bleed out. So let's look at these insecure attachment styles. There are three. And then what happens is if you think of it like a quadrant, so we have secure attachment in the top corner, if we took a a square and divided it into four, and then we have the three insecure attachment styles. And I'm going to go to this very simple and deep place because we need to, instead of just addressing the outcomes of an illness we and a wound, we need to go right to the wound and clean it out. Because I think that we spend a lot of time band-aiding things that are just symptoms of the cause, which is our broken attachment. So let's go back to the wound. That's what I did. I went back to the place that I broke first. And that is going to be your relationship with your mother. If you were adopted, it will be your birth mother, as well as the mother who raised you. If you were raised by your grandmother, it will be that person. So there is tremendous power in recognizing who your primary caregiver was and looking at them as a broken and beautiful human being. Being able to enter a story is the capacity to hold brokenness and beauty at the same time. If we are able to do that for our caregivers, then we also need to do that for ourselves. So avoidant attachment, first of all, the word avoidant is sounds very negative. My husband has avoidant attachment and he hates the word avoidant, I think too, because it does seem very negative. I would think of it more as protective. And the internal working model of a child that is an avoidant is something like this. I'm on my own. People are not going to meet my needs. It's better not to ask for anything than to ask and be dismissed by them. I'll just avoid depending on anyone. When I ask people about attachment, I ask them two questions. Were you parentified or were you dismissed? And oftentimes I have to explain parentified. This came from Adam Young. His podcast is wonderful, The Place We Find Ourselves. But really, it's very simple in the fact that Most people will know instantly if they were dismissed, ignored, belittled, told to, you know, man up or be a big girl, right? I want you to imagine that a baby is in a crib crying in a room. The baby can see the door and it's looking for mama. It's crying, it's crying, it's crying. The baby has a need. They see mama come to the door and their whole system feels different for a minute, a split second. They have relief. Because there's mama. Because nothing is more beautiful to the face of an infant than mama. They can smell her. They sense her. They know who their mama is. She looks in the room, catches the eye of her infant, and then walks away. Think about what that would do in the body of a baby. You saw the one you were crying for. They came to your door. They looked in. And they chose to dismiss your need. And they left. That is the shattering of shalom. That is the shattering of a baby heart. We're not going to always get it right. 
But if this happens consistently to an infant, they are going to start thinking in an implicit way, because we don't make explicit memories for quite a while, but their body will remember the feeling that they are not enough for someone to come and meet their need. Later on, fast forward to when we're adults, we become people pleasers, we become controlling, we, we make sure that everything is in, in order, we make sure that we don't ask for help, we stay too long at work, we take on too much responsibility, because we are so afraid of people knowing that deep down inside us, we feel like we are not seen. And then being seen is terrifying. It's a double-edged sword. So avoidant caregivers are going to be dismissive and rejecting. They're really unaffected by the distress or the cues of their infant. So they might be doing a million things and they choose to let their baby cry because, well, the baby's not, it's not that big of a deal, right? And I know I'm making these, these examples really extreme because... I want you to see the, the disparity and I want you to understand how these things can happen. And remember, only 20 to 30% of the time we have to get it right. So they're rarely attuned to the needs of their child. This can be um, easily happening, unfortunately, when someone is a single parent or they have many other obligations. So it's really important that whatever moments we do have with our children, we are being incredibly intentional and that our own insecure attachment is not interfering with those moments because you can have to put your child in daycare. You might have to be a single parent. You might not be able to spend as much time with your child, but you can still have a secure attachment relationship with them if you do the work and if you're making the choices to really connect with them in that secure way, an intentional way. The next one is ambivalent or anxious attachment. This is what I um, went into therapy to heal from. And it's the internal working model is based upon the unpredictability of our caregiver. Oftentimes their parents are more concerned or consumed by their own emotional pain or inability. And so therefore They get a working model that says, I cannot depend on my caregiver to attune to or meet my needs. It always changes. Um, So there was always just this feeling for me of not knowing exactly what I was going to get with my mama because she was broken from her own childhood and from her own wounds. And so there were times where I felt smothered and then there were times where I felt ignored. So that, that inconsistency plus intrusion It was, it was super unpredictable. I never knew what I was going to get. Which mama was I going to get? And it's all about their own needs. And then they create this kind of inner terror or turmoil inside the baby, which creates what we call hypervigilance. I am super good at reading a room for emotion because as a child of trauma, which I would consider insecure attachment trauma, because your brain doesn't know what to do with it as a baby. This person is supposed to be meeting my needs. Why aren't they doing it? Right? So I think it's our first trauma. You become very aware of what might change or you fear that there will be change. So you don't trust the good stuff while it's happening. I saw this happening when my husband and I had such a secure, earned secure relationship 
that it felt almost like too calm, almost boring to my brain because our brains are wired, like I said, to our environment as a baby. So because it didn't feel chaotic, it didn't feel right. Something was off. My nervous system didn't recognize that that was actually a good thing. And so I went out and created my own chaos until I found something that felt similar to the relationship I had with my mother. So we don't sometimes recognize patterns until we go into them a little deeper and study our stories. And that's why it's so important to study our story and to see some of those um, those patterns because you'll start to see like, oh my goodness, I recognize that every time this happens, this is my response. So what ambivalent attachment does is it actually teaches a child to meet the needs of their parent, which is called parentification. We become a little mini parent or a surrogate spouse. And unfortunately, this is also what Dan Allender calls a form of covert sexual abuse because it it enmeshes us. We become the surrogate spouse. So instead of a mother talking to her spouse about her feelings, she ends up telling things to her child. And that becomes a triangular kind of effect where it creates contempt for the partner that is not being shared with. And it's not something that a child is going to recognize. I just felt like my father resented me, that he didn't enjoy my company that he didn't really love me. And it was that he was angry with my mother. But I felt it in my body as if he were rejecting me. And I remember, just so that you can understand how tangled this becomes, my friends, when I went into therapy, she said, those are not your memories, Wisty. Those are your mother's. So you become almost like a one person So if you are still in this kind of relationship with your mother, where you're afraid to set boundaries, you're afraid to not do something to meet her needs, or she is telling you, well, I guess I'm just going to X, Y, Z because you're not going to LMNOP, like she's putting conditions on you, that could be a sign that there is enmeshment going on. And I have tremendous compassion and love for you because it is very, very hard to begin to voice and name that that is not okay, that you deserved more than that. And it's not love if it's constantly stealing from you, if it's constantly stealing shalom and peace. And I just would caution you to look at it and, um, Start asking yourself some questions. Find someone that can contain that story, can hold that story for you, that you can, that you can write it out, that you can investigate it. So the last form of insecure attachment is one that is absolutely painful. And it is what a child in my classroom came to me with that inspired all of my work. I was already in the process of recovering from um, love and sex addiction uh, and insecure attachment. And so a little blue eyed boy came into my classroom and he was angry at the world. His father had recently um, been discharged from jail on drug charges. His mother was pregnant with another man's child. And I could sense that he reminded me of like um, 
like he was trying to impersonate Eminem, the rapper. And uh, he was just, he would like chest bump kids in line and yell, I don't care. He was beautiful and he broke my heart. He was the child that my colleagues would be like, tag, I'm not it. And there was something about this little boy that just made me go, hmm, okay, I can get this. I can figure this out. And as I racked my brain, trying to understand how to help a boy with disorganized attachment, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to show him the neighborhood because that's what worked for me as a child. And the rest, my friends, is history. So a disorganized child or disorganized attachment has an internal working model that has been created through terror and chaos. And their model would be, I will not need you. Needing you is dangerous. I must be in control. I cannot explore the world. I'm just too busy ensuring that I'm going to be safe. What this child does is it actually bounces. They bounce between both avoidant and ambivalent anxious attachment. One day they might be super clingy and asking you for all this, you know, validation and affection. And the next day they're telling you uh, that they want nothing to do with you and uh, pushing you away. It's a source of terror inside a baby's brain when they need to go to their security figure for connection and attachment. And their caregiver is either terrorized because someone is terrifying them or they are terrifying to the baby themselves or the child. So it creates this fragmented chaos within a child's brain. It implodes their brain with no ability to regulate their own emotions. So blue eyes in my classroom, he would, he would go from zero to 50 in a second. He was so unpredictable and frightening to the other kids. He would use his body to intimidate. He would fling himself around the room. Uh, He could not concentrate on work. One day he would be super sweet. The next day he would be manipulating. So children could not figure him out. And so they started to avoid him. He also pushed a little girl up that he loved up against the wall outside and was reenacting domestic violence. She's mine. You're all mine. Uh, Don't talk to anybody else but me. And this little girl was incredibly forgiving of him. And so was her mother. But I recognized that he was reenacting something that he had seen as a little boy or as an infant or a toddler. When I questioned his mother about this, she said, well, he was two. He wouldn't remember. And I said, ah, but our body remembers. So there is a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score. And in that book, he speaks specifically about the fact that our nervous system holds on to information that is traumatizing. So although Blue Eyes could not remember the moment he witnessed the trauma and therefore it recorded in his body. So those things that come out of us when we're like, what in the world? Where did that come from? Be curious about those moments because they might be telling us where we need to heal. That inconsistency with reactions is very, very common with children that are disorganized. You're going to see this a lot more um, in foster children because they're terrified. They're terrified to be rejected. They're terrified of being ignored. They're just plain old terrified. And so this is where um, Karen Purvis's work um, on TBRI is a wonderful thing that I would grab onto if that is you. Um, Because, or even in general, because trust-based relational 
um, practices are absolutely imperative for children who have experienced attachment trauma, as well as what we would call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. If you were to take an ACEs test, which will also be included in my book, you might be amazed at where childhood trauma has come out in your life. But on the other hand, just like Dr. Nicole LaPera said in her book, How to Do the Work, she could take an ACEs test and she would have done just fine, not recognizing that trauma comes in various forms. So don't just think to yourself, okay, I made it out because relationally it comes back to our attachment. Blue Eyes could not make um, eye contact with me. He couldn't do it at all because when we look into someone's eyes, it actually activates our attachment system. And if I am terrified to connect, I am definitely not going to look you in the eye. So it just creates this mixed ambivalence and avoidance in a child. But this can be earned. Secure attachment can be earned if you as an adult are attuned, if you are willing to sit and be patient, sit and think, sit and observe, sit and do nothing at all, but just be available to these children because they have to be proven to again and again that you are safe, that you are trustworthy, that you love them, that you see them that you're not going to discount the other people who have seen them in the, in the past. If someone else has, has gone along before you to do this work, connect to them to show that child there are people in a village rooting for you. Don't just discount what everybody else has done because as a kindergarten teacher, it's been very common for people that are go, you know, grades above me to just be like, Oh, well, you have this kid. Okay. But I'm like, no, that kid knows because I spent 180 days telling that kid that they were worth something. And most of all, kids need to know that they're not going to lose your love, that there is nothing that you, they could do that would make you not love them. There is freedom in that. It gives you the freedom to be able to correct them and discipline them and mold them and shape them because they know that they matter to you. So as a whole, just to recap, we have secure attachment, which is formed through relationships with our caregiver. Then if those needs are not met or they're inconsistent or they are rejected or dismissed, we can come up with three different types of basic insecure attachment, avoidance or avoidant attachment, anxious ambivalent attachment, or disorganized attachment. In the coming months and within the next year, we're going to be doing a lot more with that on my website, uh, wisteriaedwards.com, as well as at Wisty for Instagram and Wisteria Edwards on Facebook. And, um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn as well, but I, I want this to be an opportunity for you to explore your own attachment styles, as well as the attachment styles of your children and to look into these simple practices that we can start to, um, to participate in so that we can create more wholeness for our children, because it can stop with you. It can start anew. You can have enough God, you can have enough security that you can stop intergenerational trauma because what intergenerational trauma is truly is what is not resolved gets passed. And so that is why we pass pain. We pass conditioning. We pass ways of relating to our children and our children's children. So my hope and my prayer for you as you listen to this is that you would be encouraged that it is possible 
that it is a worthy pursuit, that you would know that simple and deep is far more essential than shallow and complex. You are loved. Take care, friends. Thanks for joining us this week on Simple and Deep. Make sure that you visit my website, wisteriaedwards.com, where you can subscribe to receive updates about my upcoming book, Waiting for Mr. Rogers. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate you giving it a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it, or simply tell a friend about the show too. That would be a great help. Till next time, take care.